I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In his book, Faith and Doubt, John Ortberg writes that mountains have always been God places. A mountain, if you think about it, is where heaven and earth come closest to each other. And there is something transcendent about a mountain. A mountain is a place of vision. In ancient times, the remoteness and inaccessibility of mountains gave them an aura of mystery and power. Still today, they produce a sense of wonder and awe that there is a higher reality. And we are mountain climbers, aren't we? We are mountain seekers. Height is always suggestive to us of transcendence and power and vision. We, we venerate height. In the ancient world, altars were generally built on high places where sacrifices would be offered by high priests. And even today, we speak of high ideals and high achievements and politicians run for high offices and people of greater height actually make higher salaries than shorter people do. It's a fact. They do. When someone becomes pretentious, we tell him to get off his high horse. And we use drugs to give us a sense of temporary transcendence. We give them names like ecstasy and say they make us high. When we become addicted, we seek the help of a higher power. Great heights inspire us, but they also humble us. They speak to us of our own smallness. No matter how hard we try, human beings are unable to refrain from worship. We worship something. Fyodor Dostoevsky said, quote, The one essential condition of the human existence is that man should always be able to bow down before something infinitely great. Unquote. When a subject comes before a king, what does he do? He kneels down. He's acknowledging that he is in the presence of his master. When a believer in any religion prays to his God, he kneels down. He's acknowledging that he is in the presence of his master. When a young man asks a woman to marry him, he gets down on one knee. He is acknowledging that he is in the presence of his master. One of God's most important names used some 50 times in the Bible is God Most High. All of the signals of transcendence point toward him. He is over all. In him we come to the mountain that cannot be conquered, cannot be mastered, cannot be measured. Sometimes we make it to the mountaintop, and it's on the mountaintop where we see, finally, a mountaintop experience is that moment when you suddenly find yourself able to believe. You are able to see. You have vision. You hear an inspirational talk. You watch the birth of a child. You receive an answer to prayer. Sometimes it's beauty that pierces your heart. A series of notes in a song or a phrase in a book. And you know that God is there. Faith is born. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga says that we have a kind of special faculty called the sensus divinitatis, as John Calvin named it, that is triggered by the marvelous, impressive beauty of the night sky, for instance, the timeless crash and the roar of the surf that resonates deep within us, the majestic grandeur of a mountain range, even awareness of guilt sparks that sense. Just as bats have radar and dogs can hear dog whistles, we have moments when it is clear to us that things are not what they seem. Thomas Aquinas told a friend after his monumental work, writing his monumental work, I have seen things 
that make all my writings seem like straw. There is in all of us a sense of the divine. Again, Ortberg continues, he says, we are drawn to the mountain. It is suggestive that there never has been a society that began with an atheistic or naturalistic culture. Always human beings have begun with a story. Always they have begun with faith. Doubt always comes later. But doubt always comes. Here's the sad truth about the mountaintop. No one is allowed to remain there permanently. Everyone has to return to the valley of ambiguity at some point. This means that we can expect that our sense of certainty about our beliefs will ebb and flow. Sometimes doubts will come. And doubts certainly do come. To all of us. There are times when what we know about God doesn't always translate into feelings of trust. I once used the illustration of the great Blondin who traversed the tightrope over Niagara Falls and upon completion he turned to the crowd and asked if they believed he could do it again. Affirming their confidence that surely he could do it, he then requested a willing participant to ride on his back while he did it again. As you can guess, there weren't any takers. They all believed he could do it. They had the evidence. They had seen him do it. But no one would bet the farm their lives on it. In the midst of a world teetering on the edge of disaster on so many fronts, both public and personal, it's easy for people to view an invitation to the journey of faith in the same exact way. No one wants something as shaky and perilous as a tightrope walk over a raging, tumultuous precipice, do they? People want a mountain to stand on. What the scriptures show us today is that in Christ, that's exactly what you get. A sure-footed journey into the security of a mountain. Solid, stable, steadfast, immovable, unshakable. That is the picture we get through Psalm 121 and also Psalm 125. I believe the two go hand in hand and are almost inseparable. So I want to read them to you in conjunction with each other. Listen as they're read together. Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. They just end there. What the psalmist gives us through these two psalms are two solid footholds, blanket assistance and blessed assurance, both of which are stabilized by the sovereignty of God. But don't misinterpret what I'm saying here or the psalmist is saying. To think that Christians are always sure-footed, that they don't experience stress and anxiety in their life, and that they never lose heart is to deny, first, the clear teaching of Scripture, and second, the practical truth of our constant need of a sovereign Savior and Lord. The key to handling this journey of faith, however, lies in where we seek our strength and security. As we experience the trials of this journey called the Christian life, are we to focus upon ourselves and our circumstances, our lot in life? Alexander McLaren once said that it is a great deal easier for a man to look at what is at his feet 
than to crane his neck and gazing at the stars. And that's true, isn't it? I remember one of my earliest memories as a young boy when we lived in Rhode Island was walking on railroad tracks with my grandfather. He'd go for long walks for hours and he'd take me with him. I couldn't have been more than five or six years old probably, four or five. But I just remember walking on those railroad tracks and I remember that I, my eyes were riveted on every footstep that I took to make sure that I was hitting those ties. Otherwise I'd trip and fall. But that very fact, the fact that it's easier for us to look at what is at our feet than to crane our neck and see what lies in the stars is a contributing factor to what the world's claims are that Christianity today is powerless in the world. Too often the gravity of life has taken hold of our heads our eyes and our aspirations, and they have hung them low. But friends, when our security becomes rooted in ourselves and what our circumstances are and the threatened by the adverse afflictions right in front of us, the effectiveness of our faith is supremely suppressed. This ought not to be, in the words of James, the person set on the road of faith finds his security in the Lord. Psalm 121 is appropriately subtitled A Song of Ascents. Its message builds as a staircase leading the reader to confidence in the Lord. It is categorized as one of the pilgrim psalms, possibly sung by a, a soldier or a pilgrim of ancient Palestine. Psalms 120 through 134 actually formed an ancient hymn book used by those who were traveling up to Jerusalem for the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. They would use it as their hymn book. They'd sing these songs as they made the journey up to Jerusalem. And you know, as well as I do, geographically, no matter where you're going to Jerusalem, from where, you're going up. This psalm then relates well to believers today who are engaged in the lifelong journey of faith toward our eternal home. As we read this psalm, we can picture the exile who turns his attention from the plains of Mesopotamia or Babylonia towards the mountains of Jerusalem and put ourselves in his place or her place. It's a psalm of focus. Like that exile, we must look beyond our earthly existence and circumstances. We must determine to do this. We must lift our heads and rivet our attention on the goal of the journey. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. This psalm is truly a staircase for sure, leading us to a climactic conclusion that there is stable ground in a shaking world. And we need that, right? We need that assurance today, don't we? That the stability of our heart, mind, and soul is found in the security of a Savior. There are two foundational truths in this psalm which support this staircase. Number one, every believer is secure in the power of the Lord. That's the first four verses. And secondly, every believer is secure in the preservation of the Lord. That's verses 5 through 8. Let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, we are secure in the unrivaled power of the Lord. First four verses. Follow with me. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come. Well, what do these mountains represent anyway? The most common observation might be that the mountains represent the strength and the majesty of God. To the Hebrew, it could also mean a possible place of refuge, as was suggested to David in Psalm 11. David knew better, however. Listen to what Psalm 11 says. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Run to the hills and hide there. Or maybe the psalmist was contrasting the security and the salvation of the Lord with the place of 
pagan false worship that happened on the mountains in the high places. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 23 kind of hints at that. Surely, it says, the idolatrous commotion, and literally that means religious orgies, on the hills and in the mountains are a deception, Jeremiah says. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Either way, it drives the writer beyond his natural surroundings to proclaim that his help is not in the mountains, it's not in the hills, his help is in, in time of need, comes from where? The Lord. And it's not just the Lord. In your Bibles, you may have the word Lord in small caps that usually, that always, at least, in my Bible, signifies that the word is Yahweh. The self-existent mighty one who is creator not only of the mountains but the entire universe and who is sovereign over all that goes on in it. In both Psalm 11 and in Jeremiah 3, the writer concludes what the Psalm here, 121, verse 1, states plainly that only in the Lord can we experience the blessed assurance of security. Not in anything else, because it's the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. Ultimately, we concur with the cry of Peter in John chapter 6, verse 68, who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The person that's set on the road of faith finds his security in the Lord. He is secure in the power of the Lord because first, his power is unlimited. Verse two, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Friends, we may be able to navigate the web, interconnect with the global village, watch the major events of the world as it occurs in live action in real time on television, but we are the same in essence as the farmers, shepherds, and desert wanderers of the Old Testament who sat under the prophets who declared God's word. We're made of the same stuff, aren't we? We are the same as the fishermen, the olive grove workers, and the tax collectors who sat at the feet of Jesus as he revealed the truth of God to them. We are people who desperately need to realize that the central theme of both the Old and New Testaments is, as historian Paul Johnson points out, that God, not man, is the final authority. He is our ultimate stability and provides our only true security, period. And the whole thing is a matter of trust, isn't it? It's a matter of faith. And that explains why and how you and I can experience stability in the midst of a world that may shake violently. How can we have 2020 faith in a world that's gone blind, spiritually speaking? It's right here. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It can only be experienced through a relationship with the one who governs all the affairs of men. And how do you have that relationship? Through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the all-powerful, omnipotent Lord who created the heavens and the earth. To him, no one compares. No one Compares. Isaiah wrote of that. In Isaiah 40, and in verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Isaiah says, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Verse 21. 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. It's good to remember that right now, isn't it? Who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, God says, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, and not one of them is missing. God hung the stars and keeps them there in perfect balance. And literally Jesus did that, John 1 talks about, right? All things were made by him and for him. So we can trust him. Can't we? Will you trust him? His power is unlimited. His power is also immovable in verse 3, back in Psalm 121. He will not allow your foot to slip. Well, here's a great question now. You're reading that and you're waiting, wait a second. What's he saying here? People slip and fall all the time. Will financial distress cause us to slip and fall in our journey? How about misfortune? Because that's the emblematic meaning of a foot slipping in the Hebrew language. As a matter of fact, on a mountainous journey, the slipping of a Hebrew's foot could mean disaster. I mean, in Scotland, my family and I went on a hike on a, on a cliff walk, and the pathway was like about that wide. And it didn't take much, one little slip of the foot and down you go. Will temptation cause you to lose your footing? Well, here's the, here's the thing. Not if the foundation on which you and I rest is the power of God. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9 says this, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Not by our strength, anyway. It is by the power of God, and that power is unlimited. It is immovable. You can trust him. Will you trust him? That question reminds me of that age-old story about a man who was walking along that narrow path on a cliff walk, kind of like the one we did, not paying much attention to where he was going. Suddenly, he slipped over the edge of the cliff, and as he fell, he grabbed a branch growing from the side of that cliff. And realizing that he couldn't hang on for very long, he screamed for help. Is there anybody up there? And the voice says, yes, I'm here. Well, who's that? And the voice says, it's the Lord. The man says, Lord, help me. The Lord says, do you trust me? I trust you completely, Lord. Good. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Long pause. Is there anybody else up there? <laughs> That's a very, very cliche illustration. But the point is, how many times have you heard it? How many times have you been the same person that said, is there anybody else up there that can help me? It seems that faith is often portrayed as a twig which holds us as we perilously dangle over the threat of violent destruction. While that is true in some sense, I'm convinced that people are looking for something way more stable than that presentation. Because we live in a politically shaken world, don't we? 
A world in which complete government systems fall apart in a single day. A world in which terrorism, both domestic and foreign, has become a part of daily life. We also live in a morally shaken world where horrendous atrocities are committed day in and day out by adults and children against each other. Divorce rates, domestic abuse have shaken the family. Plummeting values and increased violence have all but disintegrated our society. So much so that I just had a meeting this morning with a group of people to increase our security awareness around this place. We have to do that. That's where we are today, right? Economically, our world vibrates to the beat of a constantly fluctuating stock market and the threat of the earth being destroyed by a, radi- by a radically shaken ecosystem constantly presses in on us. All of this stuff from all sides. In a world like that, people need something solid to steady them, don't they? Something more substantial to walk on than a tightrope over Niagara Falls. Something more significant than a lone branch sticking out over a cliff. They want something as wide and as strong and as protective as they can get. They want stability. They want security. Christianity then, if it's to be of any appeal to them, must be presented as something way more than a thread dangling over an ominous precipice. You know why? Because people don't want a tightrope to walk on. They want the Great Wall of China. They don't want a twig to hang from. They want a redwood. They don't want a molehill to stand on. They want a mountain. And I want you to know today that Christ, in Christ, that's exactly what you get. You get a mountain. Something in which someone in whom we can place our trust. In fact, that's the picture the psalmist gives us not only here, but in Psalm 125, verses 1 to 3. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion. It says, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. If you want to have confidence in the midst of a shaking world, it is the exclusive result of a faith that is placed in the Lord. That's what those two Psalms say. And the truth is, is that everything that we place our faith in and trust in will eventually fail. With one exception, the Lord. The Bible has a long list of the false securities that we as people indulge in. It's all in there. We put our trust in people. We put our trust in violence. We put our trust in wealth. We put our trust in military strength and power. We put our trust in religious ritual, etc., etc. It's all in the scriptures. But at present, all eyes seem to be trained on one thing today. You guessed it. Government reform. Whether it be Brexit in the U.K., we're impeachment in the U.S. People are foolishly looking to human leadership for their salvation and security. Foolishly. But let me ask you, will a change of governing officials bring the security and the peace that you and I need? Let me stir your thinking a bit with a challenge I once encountered. Imagine that we elected all the right people to all the right offices. President, Congress, governors, right down to the school board, city council members, and the dog catcher. I don't even know if that's something you vote for anymore. Let's imagine that all these ideal office holders instituted all the right policies. Let's imagine that we got all the propositions right. Every piece of legislation from zoning laws to tax codes to immigration policy to crime bills is just exactly the way you know that it ought to be. Okay? 
Got that in your head? Now let me ask you these questions. Would that usher in the kingdom of God? Would the hearts of the parents be turned to their children? Would all marriages be models of faithful love? Would greed and pride be legislated out of existence? Would assistant pastors find senior pastors to be models of harmony and delight? <laughs> Would human beings now at last be able to master our impulses in areas like sexuality and anger and narcissism? Let's get a little bit more personal, shall we? Would you finally become the man or the woman that you know that you ought to be? I don't think so. Because no human system has the ability to change the human heart. Not even de democracy or capitalism or postmodern emergent ancient future missionalism, whatever you want to put on it. T.S. Eliot summed up our quandary brilliantly. He said it this way. We want a system of order so perfect that we don't have to be good what we want, don't we? But honestly, friends, putting your ultimate trust in anything but the Lord is flimsy at best and fatal at worst. The basis for our assurance in the face of a shaking world is that we are secure in the power of the Lord. It is unlimited, it is immovable, and his power is unwearied. Again, verses 3 and 4. He who keeps you will not slumber, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The keeper of the nation of Israel, the keeper of every person who has placed their faith in Christ never grows tired of his ministry. Isn't that good news? He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. The word translated keeper here is used six times in five out of the eight verses of this psalm. In verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 8, and twice in verse 7. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by light, night. The Lord will protect you from all he, evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and coming in. The same word, keeper. You know what it means? It means to exercise great care over, to preserve. That's literally, it means to preserve. On every ship, there's a donut-shaped buoy attached to a lifeline. It's there, you know why? In case somebody carelessly slipping falls overboard. My friends, if by chance in your Christian walk you are caught brooding, lamenting, having a pity party, shoulders slumped, head down, focused on your affliction, and you slip and fall, the answer is lift up your eyes. The Lord is your life preserver. He is your lifeline, and he never, verse 4 says, sleeps. Another old story that I used to tell, writer tells of a captain who commanded a ship on a particular voyage that brought the entire, his entire family with him. And one night when everyone was quietly asleep, a sudden squall rose up, throwing the ship, kind of listing it to one side, tumbling and crashing everything that was movable and waking up all the passengers. And immediately they were, they were all aware of their imminent danger. And so everyone was alarmed and dressed in preparation for the worse. The captain had an eight-year-old girl on board who, of course, awoke with the rest. What's the matter, said the frightened child. And they told her how this wind had just made the ship just tip right over. She says, is father on deck? Yes, father's on deck. But the little girl dropped herself on her pillow again without fear, and in a few moments she was sleeping soundly in spite of all of it. Here's the point, that although it doesn't always feel true, 
We may rest easy on the journey no matter how intense the storm may be in our lives because of the truth of this verse. For behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Your crisis notwithstanding. All you have to do is understand the truth that is to consider the nation of Israel. Just consider the nation of Israel and you will know this to be true. And God's preservation of that nation throughout history. And then remember that when you are in Christ, a child of God, you are his precious possession, surrounded ultimately by his same protection and preservation because the Lord is the one who preserves his people. And we are his people if we're in Christ, just like the nation of Israel. And that's the second foundational truth of this psalm as we navigate this mountain path of faith. Not only are we secure in the unlimited, immovable, and unwearied power of the Lord, but we can rest assured that every believer is secure in the promised preservation of the Lord. Verse 5, again, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord is your keeper, the psalmist says. He's concerned with you individually and corporately. Even though the Lord allows us to undergo physical temptations and trials, he preserves us until we reach the end of our journey. And that's what it means where it says, he will not allow your foot to slip. He means ultimately. We may trip up and fall along the way, but ultimately your soul is preserved if you're in Christ. Even though the Lord allows us to undergo physical temptation and trials, he keeps us. In other words, this verse doesn't guarantee a life without problems, pain, or difficulty, but ultimately your salvation and mine, both spiritually and physically, is guaranteed. Let me clue you in on one of my biggest, biggest pet peeves. You getting how serious I am? (laughs) I've heard people say this time and time again. Maybe you said it. The Bible says that God will never give you more than you can bear. More than you can handle. How many times have I heard people say that? I heard it just the other day. Let me tell you, Categorically, that is not scriptural. It is a partial quotation and a misrepresentation of what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, and here it is, it'll be on the screen. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Here's what people should say. God will not give you more than you can bear with him as your Lord. He will help you bear it. He will provide the way of escape 1 Corinthians 10, 13 in the New Living Translation says it like this, and I like this. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand, because when you're tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure it. Me and you, Lord, we can handle anything. That's basically what he's saying. God gives us stuff all the time that we can't handle on our own. That's why we need him. Sometimes God allows us to go through many things we can't handle so that we will look to him for our strength, so that we will rely on him to bring us through. And he has promised that he will. Again, look at the nation of Israel. God's preservation of the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. A cloud by day affording them shade from the intense sun. And a fire by night affording them protection from the cold and the darkness. Gives testimony to God's promised preservation. And I think maybe that's what they were referring to here in the psalm. In their emotional roller coaster ride of history, one thing remained unchanged. They were always God's people. Amen? 
Everything that happened to them happened in the security of God's gracious presence, the certainty of his redemptive plan. And in the end, one day, they will receive Christ as their Messiah, and all the prophecies about Israel will be fulfilled. What does that tell me? That tells me that I am secure when I learn to live by the facts about my relationship with God, not by my feelings about them. As Eugene Peterson wrote, I refuse to believe my depression, my depressions. I choose to believe in God. My feelings are important. Yes, they are essential and valuable, but they tell me next to nothing about God or my relationship to God. My security comes from the God who is, not from how I feel. Discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God, not by what I feel about him or myself or my neighbors. Amen? 2 Corinthians 4.16 in the message says it like this. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things we now see here today, gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. The Lord preserves us until we have finished our course, which he has planned for us. And he knows that time frame. He preserves us physically and he preserves us spiritually. In verse 7, the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. That's the crux of the whole psalm right there. The Lord preserves not only our bodies, but also our soul, our very life. He preserves us from all evil, not just some evil, but all evil. Ultimately, who is the author of all evil? Satan. So in Matthew 6, the petition Christ taught us to pray was what? And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And literally, it's the evil or the evil one. In John 17, the Lord's high priestly prayer, Jesus petitions the Father. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He preserves us spiritually to the end if we're in Christ. And he preserves us in totality, completely. Verse 8, the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in. The phrase you're going out and coming in translates as everything you do. None of the things that happen to us in our journey, no physical troubles, no spiritual battles, no evil of any kind has power to divert his preserving grace from you until your time here is up. You know, I told you a couple of weeks ago about this pileup that we experienced in Scotland where a double-decker bus slammed into the back end of the car I was driving and drove me into my son and then into three, two other cars ahead of him. And remarkably, none of us were really badly hurt. What I didn't finish up and tell you was this. That accident happened at 4.30 in the afternoon that day. When we got home, my daughter Sarah was telling us about that, that, that morning, that Saturday morning, that she was out of a clear blue sky, was overwhelmed with an urge and, a, and just this pressure to pray. She didn't know what was going on, but something was happening. She wanted to, she had to pray, and she called Crystal and engaged her in it as well. They didn't know what was going on. So that was 11.30 in the morning. Scotland is five hours ahead, which makes it 4.30 in the afternoon when we had the accident. See, God knows how to preserve when he preserves. We could have gotten killed. Some people do. And you say, well, you didn't preserve that person. Well, yes, God preserves every one of his children until that day when he calls them home. It just wasn't our time. 
But you can rest assured that in the midst of your trouble, God is preserving your soul. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says this, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You believe that? Good. So he preserves us perpetually in, in, chapter, in verse 8 from this time forth and forever. Look, when you're in Christ, you're surrounded by his protection from this time forth and forever. That's assurance. Blessed assurance. It's assurance based on the facts. And it is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Your crisis, my crisis does not surprise the Lord. Let me give you three biblical principles, about actually four, about any crisis that you will ever encounter as a believer. I borrowed them from, from another writer. They're not mine, but here they are for your note-taking. Number one, every crisis is ordained. It's in God's calendar. The day, the month, the year, they're all scheduled. Read Psalm 139, verse 16. So when the crisis shows up, the only reason that we're shocked is because we don't have a copy of God's schedule. Just read Isaiah 14, verses 24, 26, and 27. We won't turn there now, not enough time. But does that mean God caused your crisis? Nobody knew about it. He's going to do something with it. And he also knows how to get you out of it. Number two, every crisis is controlled. Every crisis is ordained. Every crisis is controlled. He set the boundaries front and back. Number three, every crisis has a purpose. Read Romans 8, 28. God has no process without good as his purpose. And then four, every crisis brings with it the providential care of God. Jesus promised, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. He surrounds his people with his presence. Do you practice the presence of God? In your mind, you rehearse it. We're going to do it right now. Because God surrounds his people with his presence. And we need to recognize how present he is. So I'm going to have you repeat some points with me. Don't we have a redeemer who is present? Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.5 says... By quoting an Old Testament promise of God, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So what shall man do to me? So right now, in your mind, you may be asking, where is God in my pain? Where is God right now? Listen to what the Bible says. Genesis 17.1, God said to Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God is behind me to protect me. Say it. God is behind me to protect me. Deuteronomy 13, 4 says, God said, you shall follow the Lord your God. Jesus Christ says, follow me. That means God is in front of me to lead me. Say it. God is in front of me to lead me. Psalm 91, 1 says, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That means God is above me to watch over me. Say it. God is above me to watch over me. Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. He holds us up. God is beneath me to support me. Say it. God is beneath me to support me. Genesis 5, 24 and 6, 9, Enoch and Noah walked with God. Do you walk with God? If you do, you know what? God is beside me in fellowship. Say it. That is beside me in fellowship. Psalm 16, 8. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
That was referring to Jesus, by the way. I will not be shaken. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27 in Galatians 2.20 says that Christ is in me. Say it. Christ is in me. Christ is in me. If you're a believer. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Say it, God is all around me. That's also Psalm 121, by the way. So what have I got? Look at it right there on the screen. I've got a God who is behind me, before me, above me, below me, beside me, on the right hand, on the left, and who is in me and all around me. So you ask, where is God? The better question might be, where isn't he? Where isn't he? Psalm 139, verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Even if I make my home in the uttermost parts of the sea, your right hand will guide me. He's everywhere. Psalm 125, verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. If you believe in Christ, you can be as immovable as the mountain of God. They won't be disturbed. You won't be disturbed. In fact, not only will you not be disturbed, but you will never be destroyed. Those who trust in the Lord endure forever, eternally, perpetually, or as the Hebrew signifies, to the vanishing point. That's what it means. Just as Jerusalem is surrounded by the mountains, geographically, so God surrounds his people perpetually from this time forth and forever. That's a great promise to end a sermon on and start a new year on, isn't it? So making this pilgrimage of faith, it's a very difficult thing. Seems so risky. And as you navigate the narrow footpath up the mountain, there may be some treacherous terrain ahead of you. Probably will be. Raging waterfall may be going on beneath you and all kinds of people surrounding you, waiting and watching for you to make a, a slip, a misstep and fall. And the weather may be adverse and the conditions far from perfect and you may lose your footing and you might stumble, but it will never, if you're in Christ, be fatal. Ultimately, because we're not walking on a thinly stretched tightrope. We are standing in the middle of a mountain. The sovereignty of God, stable and secure. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we have the security of your protection and preservation. Thank you for Psalm 121 and Psalm 125 and Romans 8 and so many other passages. John chapter 10 where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So much security and assurance in the Bible, Lord, for those who place their faith and trust in you. Bring those things to memory, Lord God, when we need them the most. It's easy to say it when we're in a good place. It's a little more difficult when we're suffering and we doubt. But again, remind us by your word and by the power of your spirit within us, don't doubt in the valley what you found to be true on the mountain. For Jesus' sake, I ask it. Amen.